Well, I need to update one thing. I said something wrong earlier. Uh, and that is, I said there were 64 kids at VBS, and then I got a text message from my wife who tells me there were 77 kids at VBS. So uh, there were 77 kids at VBS. I'm sorry if you were one of the 13 that I forgot about. Um, so one of the things I like about being married, as you kind of come back over here, uh, is, is I like learning. I don't like it in the moment, but over time I like learning the, that the way I always did things isn't necessarily the right thing. You know, like you grow up and your parents just did it and their parents did it and their parents did it and so you, you just automatically assume that that's the way that it's done. And, and, and the, the biggest example, I've, I've said this in a sermon I know before, but the one from Bryn and I's marriage is, is from the movie theater. When I was growing up, whatever trash we had at the end of a movie, we would just leave it underneath our seats and be like, oh, there's people for that. They get paid for that. And, and then I, I started dating Bryn and, and the first time we went to a movie, which I don't know, we've been to like five movies our entire time together in the last 12 years or whatever, but, but the first time we went to a movie, I start to get up from my seat and, and I'm starting to walk out and she, I don't know, I'm surprised she didn't break up with me or something. She's like, hey, slob guy, like why, she didn't say that, but why are you leaving your trash down there? And I'm like, well, they got a guy, you know, like that's somebody's job here. Somebody gets paid for that. And she's like, would you do that anywhere else? And then I broke up with her. No, I'm like, no, I, 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 I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it anywhere else. And, and so, you know, I probably just argued with her knowing me. Like, no, that's dumb. I'm not doing that. If you want to pick up the popcorn, you pick up your own popcorn. And then she broke up with me. No. Uh, <laughs> but over time, I was like, wait, that's weird that we just leave our food, like, on the ground somewhere. Like, I wouldn't do that anywhere else. Uh, like, you know, we're going to the fair in a few weeks here. And and I would not go to the fair and be like, they have people for that, even though there's people for that, you know? I would just put my trash into a trash can. And if you're right now going, wait, I always do that. We forgive you. It's okay. Like, took me years to learn. But I was like, wow, that's, you know, that's, that's not something I'd ever thought about. It wasn't even in my thinking before. What's interesting about VBS is uh, a lot of kids decide to follow Jesus, to love Jesus, to live for Jesus, to you know, give their lives to Jesus, and, uh, and that's one of the things we're shooting for. If you're, if you're not like a Bible person or a Jesus person, and you kind of came because it was VBS Sunday, uh, I'll just level with you. Like, one of the reasons we do VBS, the main reason we do VBS is because we want kids to know and love Jesus, and the reality is, for most people that give their lives to Jesus, that ever become Christians, it happens at a very young age. Uh, we, you know, whether it was our parents or whatever, we, we just decide, I don't know when, but sometime when we're kids, whether we're going to be like those Jesus people or we're not. You know, I, I, I really got serious about this Christianity thing. The reason I'm here is because of an incident with God when I was 17 years old. And I hear that a lot. A lot of people at 17 years old kind of make a commitment to be Christians, to follow Jesus, to love Jesus, all those things. And, and what I've noticed is that once you kind of become an adult, it can be really hard to undo the, the thinking that you've had for your entire life. It's like really hard to say, well, I should pick up the trash at the movie theater. You know, it's really hard to say, well, well maybe this is a better way to store stuff in a house or whatever. It's really hard to change our thinking. And so we run VBS so that kids will learn at a young age that they should live and for Jesus, that they should love Jesus. But a lot of you are adults, and, and I think that the verse that we looked at this week applies just as much to adults as it does 
kids. I mean, what John says is like, hey, the things that I'm writing, the things in this book that's called John, the things that are there, they're written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. It's really interesting in John chapter 30, the verse right before the ones that the kids almost memorized this week, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. That's kind of crazy, right? Like we kind of think like everything major that Jesus did. I mean, if you're like me anyway, you think like everything major Jesus did, everything important that Jesus ever did. Of course, all of that's in the Bible. But John says like, no, he did a bunch of other cool stuff. And I didn't write it down. And it's even crazier by, by chapter 21, verse 25, just a little while later. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. What a line. I mean, this author, John, is like, hey, if, if Jesus' miracles, if all the cool stuff he did was written down, the world could not contain the stories. And so it begs the question, like, well, why did he put certain things into this book and not other things? And that's what our verse that we looked at this week answers. But these are written, dot, dot, dot. He's going to tell us why he wrote the things that are in this little book in the Bible called John. I mean, why he took the time to write down the things that he did. And it's interesting. Have you ever thought about why we have the Bible the way it is? It's incredible that we do. I mean, there's not any other book like it where thousands of years ago somebody penned these words. In fact, a lot of people penned different words and then, and then people came together and said, we need to put these all into a collection and, and they're so important, so valuable to us that we're going to spend hour upon hour upon hour and put hundreds of men towards making sure that these books are recorded as is over and over and over and over again throughout the centuries. The Bible was spread all over the known world before the printing press even came into an existence. And it begs the question, like, why? Why did men give their entire lives to being people as a job who would sit there and make sure that this book was copied down correctly so that the next generation and the next generation and the next generation would have it? But even more specifically to, like, John and the author of John, have you ever thought about, like, why they wrote the things that they wrote about Jesus. It's really interesting. You probably know that we have in the Bible this story that we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus is born. And you probably know just by being an American that's grown up here, you probably know that we, we have this story about Jesus dying. I mean, you probably know because of Easter that there's this story about Jesus coming back to life. But then there's other stories and then there's these major gaps in his life. We don't know much about years 28 through 30. And we don't know hardly anything about years 28 through 30 in the life of Jesus. Like, what was he doing? What was happening? And why didn't they write anything? Did he go to high school? What was his relationship with his parents like? We'd like to know those things. One of the most popular sermons on the internet that I've ever preached, it spread very widely, is this story about what Jesus, it was me like speculating, ta-da, angels are here, uh, me speculating about what Jesus would have been like growing up. And people listen to that because I think we have this curiosity. But John, the author of John, says, hey, I'm going to tell you why I wrote the things that I wrote. And here's what he says in John 20, 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And don't get me wrong, we believe, here's what we believe. I know it's a little crazy if you're not a Jesus Christian Bible person, but it's a little crazy, I know. But what we believe about the Bible is that men just didn't write on their own accord, but literally God inspired them to write. 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God moved in them and caused them to write the things that they wrote. But that, acts, that leads to a bigger question. Like, why these things, God? Why did you want these authors, this author, to write these things down? And the answer here in the book of John is so clear. We don't always get the answer. We don't know why Leviticus was recorded. You know, like, why did it go just the way it was? Why did God talk about certain warts and not other warts and certain types of mold and not other types of mold? I mean, why those things? But here we have an answer about why these things are written about Jesus. And it's because John, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wanted you and I to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Let me tell you something I'm convicted about this morning, and that is this. Too often we lose sight of the reason for the Bible, for the things that are said about Jesus, because we pay such close attention to the details. I mean, I have seven years of higher education where I looked at the details of the Bible, and I can tell you that one of the things that can happen is you get caught up in the details, like, well, why did it say this, and what's the language behind this, and what's the order here, and all of that stuff. When you get caught up in all that, you forget, you really can forget what it's all about, the reason that it's there in the first place, and that is to help us believe, come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Another thing I'm convicted about is this. Sometimes people want to pay such close details that they forget about Jesus, but such close attention that they forget about details. But the other thing I'm convicted of is, is this. A lot of people never even read this incredible book that is frankly miraculous that we have it today, and they won't even pay attention to it, and they'll just reject it outright. I mean, this author of John painstakingly wrote as the Holy Spirit led him to write these certain things so that you might decide if Jesus is this incredible person, this incredible God who came from heaven to earth. And so many people have never read it at all. And they're just like, eh, I don't believe that stuff. You might be one of those people. They're just like, I just reject it. I don't know why I reject it. Here's my guess. You reject it probably because sometime as a kid, you chose to reject it and you've never really thought about it as an adult. Maybe it was because you had Christian parents that were jerks and you just couldn't believe the story anymore. Well, if that, stuck, if that stuff is true, I don't want to believe it anyway because these people claim to believe it and they're abusive and they're horrible and they're mean and all they do is push rules and shove their agenda down my throat and I don't want any part of that anymore. And other people, maybe it's because you didn't have Christian parents and it just wasn't a part of life and you didn't go to church and it's like, that's just the way we do things. We just leave the popcorn on the floor and we don't ever think about it again. But here's this, this thing, this book, this document, specifically the, the document called John that is there so that you can read it and, and at least make a decision as an adult about whether or not it's true and whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now those, let's just, I mean, two things there that John wants you to believe, the author of John wants you to believe. The first is that, I'm going to do them in opposite order, that Jesus is the Son of God. I don't think it needs much explanation to be like, wow, that's a big deal. That's quite the bold claim, right? 
I mean, we don't need any background information. If somebody rolled in here right now, stood on stage and said, I'm the son of God, you would probably just reject them outright. But if they started to do some of the stuff that, that we read about in the Bible, then you would begin to say, wow, maybe let's talk about that and look at that. Uh, and, and so here's, that's the first claim. John's like, I, I've come to believe. I've come to believe this and I want you to believe it too. And the other one is the Messiah, and that's what we're going to talk about more. But before we dive into that really quickly this morning, I just want to say that, that the guy who, who John is named after, this book called John, he believed so strongly that not only did he give you know, a part of his life to writing this thing down as the Holy Spirit led him, but what we know about John is that tradition tells us that John was, was boiled alive, and then he survived it. Like, people wanted him to stop talking about Jesus, stop telling people that they should believe Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, that they threw him in hot water, and he survived it. So good ending there. But then they're like, well, we can't shut him up no matter what we do. And so they exiled him to an island called Patmos, and then you know what he did? He wrote this weird, crazy book that's at the end of your Bible called the Book of Revelation. And if I could summarize the book of Revelation, I know it's going to be a surprise to many of you, but if I could summarize it, I would simply say this. The book of Revelation is written so that people would continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. John looks out, he sees the landscape, he says, you're being tortured, you're being persecuted, you're being hurt for believing this, but what I want to do for you is I have this vision, I want you to know that it's worth it to keep believing that, even though it's hard to keep believing that. And so why does it matter? Like, okay, the Son of God, the Messiah. Well, here's what's so cool about this book called John. I love this. Is that the entirety of the book is trying to prove, show you, help you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But it's written so that, that as you read it, you come to understand what it is that it means when it says the Messiah. But also why it's important that Jesus is the Messiah. John does two things in this book. First, he... He has seven signs, and we're not going to dive deeply into them today, but you should go and read the book of John and, and look for these signs. Jesus changes water into wine. He heals a royal official's son. He heals a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethsaida. He feeds 5,000. He walks on water. He heals a man born blind, and then he brings a guy named Lazarus back to life. And it's all there because John is like, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of of God. But then, this is so cool, he does this other thing. Throughout the book, he, he kind of smatters here and there these seven I am statements. And in these I am statements, Jesus saying I am, and then he uses these, these illustrations. And, and they're there because they show us two things, what the Messiah is like and why it's important that we come to believe that Jesus is that Messiah. Now, before we jump into those seven IMs, let me just say that if the Messiah term is totally foreign to you, let me just quickly just tell you what it is. For thousands of years, the Jewish people were told by God that somebody would come who would make things right. He would bring salvation. They didn't know exactly what salvation meant or looked like. They had some stuff wrong. They thought he would start a military coup and overthrow the governments and, you know, all of those things. But they knew and they believed with their hearts that somebody was coming that would make things right. Listen to this. Uh, one author says this. Throughout the book of John, we find passages that attempt to convince readers that Jesus is the Messiah and the Christ, as well as the divine Son of God sent from heaven. 
These seven I am sayings were written to reinstill the idea as well as give us a glimpse into the character, person, and purpose of the Messiah. So I want to briefly look at those with you this morning. I, I brought some props. They helped me to kind of think through things. And, and since we have kids here today, I think it's important. Well, that's a lie. I would totally have props even if we didn't have kids here today. If you go to our church, you know that's a lie. But look, here's the first one. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This is literally my bread from home. But here's what I want to say about this. What does it mean for Jesus to be the bread of life? Well, it means that he is our spiritual nourishment. It's really hard to survive without, you can't survive without physical nourishment. And what John is saying about the person of Jesus is that your soul cannot survive without the spiritual nourishment of Jesus. Now, I think it's hard for us in, in kind of America, middle class America especially, to understand what it would be like without bread, without physical nourishment. But I went gluten-free before it was cool. So I've been gluten-free for like 13 years. And in the early days of being gluten-free, I felt like there was literally nothing I could eat. I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. I was sitting in a bakery. I Googled. I don't need, We had Googled it. I Googled, and I was like, okay, what do you do about MS? And this diet popped up. And one of the things it said to do was to take away gluten. If I would have known how long I would be gluten-free, I would have had 25 more cookies. I was sitting in a great bakery with tons of good stuff and I would have had 25 more. But here's what happened. I just, I, I don't know why, but I was like, I'm doing it right now. I cut out red meat, I cut out dairy, I cut out chocolate, and I cut out gluten. For two years, I was like that, nothing. And, and, and I was living with my roommate. Where are you? He's here. Matt, there he is, waving to me in the back. Uh, and all we were eating at that time was Totino's party pizzas. Do you know the dollar pizzas that you can buy in the fr Are they still a dollar? Can you still get one for a dollar? You cannot get them for a dollar. They're probably like five now. But at the time, you could get one for like 89 cents. And that's literally what we were living on, was Totino's party pizzas all the time. And so all of a sudden, to go gluten-free, when I don't know how to cook anything, I don't know what to do, it's not like you could go to the gluten-free section, you'd say gluten, and people are like, what's that? All the time that happened to me. I dropped nine pounds in one week and you can look at me and you can see that I don't really have nine pounds to drop it was not a very healthy thing for me to do I, I just didn't have I just didn't know what to eat and I'll tell you it's kind of a helpless feeling to not know what to eat like what do I do I know I'm avoiding this thing I barely know what it is I got one google search in and that is what I think most people live like they're looking for spiritual nourishment and they're like I just don't know how to get it like things are good in my work, things are good in my family, things are good in life, but I know that there's an emptiness inside of me. And John says, in the words of Jesus, look, the bread of life, the one who brings nourishment to your soul, is Jesus and Jesus only. He also says, I am the light of the world. <laughs> I asked that same brother-in-law to bring me a flashlight today. I thought he was going to bring me like a real one. He brings me this little guy. He camps sometimes. Hey, there's a trail down there. Uh, so he got me this one. I have one like this, thank you. Um, so let me tell you a scary story. I'm sorry, kids, you're in here, but a little scary. My daughter hates scary, so I'll tell it in the best way possible. But uh, I went to Corbin University in Salem, and... It's a scary place at night. It's a good school, but a very scary place at night. It used to be a TB hospital. And so we're just kind of taking this, uh, in my most kid-friendly way, we're, we're, we're taking this scary walk at night. We're just examining the scary stuff at this school. 
And, and there's this room that's always covered by blinds. It's the only room in the library that's always uh, closed. The blinds are always closed. You can never see in it. And somebody says, well, I've heard it's, it's haunted. And, and they're making it up. Uh, I mean, we don't, I don't even believe in haunted. Uh, but, but he's like, it's haunted. Let's go look at it. This is what happens in college, right? And, and so we're like, okay, let's go, let's go. So he, he takes us into this room, and his flashlight starts to go off. He's probably making it up. I don't care because but, but, I'm scared now, right? Like his flashlight's kind of going in and out, and, and I'm like, oh, no, oh, no. And so I say, where's, where's Rob? Rob is a friend of mine, teammate of mine, and, and I don't know where Rob went. And somebody's like, oh, he went downstairs. So I, I'm like, okay, okay, I'm going to go get him. I'm trying to act tough or whatever. I was actually dating a girl at the time, and she was there, so I'm trying to act tough. It didn't work because I start to walk down the hallway in the upstairs of Corbin's library, and there's two kinds of rooms. There's a room that used to be a hospital room, and then there's a room that used to be a supply closet. They're all lined with books. And I turn and look down one of the supply closets, and I see a silhouette coming towards me, and I, let me just, I'm going to move the mic for a second, forgive me. I scream like this, just like that. I'm not making it up. Like, I wish I was making it up. And then the girl broke up with me, you know, like, um, I wish I was making it up. I wish it wasn't like that. It scared me so bad. And it only scared me because I couldn't see Rob because there was no light. And here's the reality. Most of us walk around, everybody that doesn't know Jesus walks around in this world without light. They're scared of what's coming and what's going to happen next and what happens after this life, but also they're kind of directionless. Like, what's the purpose? Why was I created? Why am I here? What does it all matter? I know that some of you that sit before me today have wrestled with these very things, and what John tells us again in the words of Jesus is that Jesus is the light of the world. He's the one who will come, who will light your path, who will show you the reason and the meaning behind life, who will show you the way to go. And will help you not be scared of some of the things that you are deeply scared uh, about. And, and here's the third one. Um, Jesus says, I am, I am the gate. I'm the gate. Uh, I'm going to see if you can see this. I'm sorry we didn't print it a little bigger. But can, where, does anybody know where that is? Disneyland, very good. This is Disneyland, everybody. This is the gate to Disneyland. Uh, past these gates is, is, is you know... The way I picture heaven, basically, I'm a Disneyland person. We're saving our money. We're going next fall with my kids. I'm, I'm already excited. We literally talk about it every single day already. Uh, I, we're so pumped to go to Disneyland. My kids have never been there. Uh, inside of these gates represents, for me, just as good as we can get on this earth. And, and here's the thing. You have to go through these gates, like, you can't go in a back exit and expect that Disneyland is going to be a successful trip for you. They're going to find you, and they're going to kick you out. And what Jesus is saying is, is look, I'm the gate. I'm the way in. I'm the way to new joy and new peace and new hope and new love and all of these things that, that we as Christians, us who are Christians, hold so tightly to. There's only one way in. It's, it's through, it is through Jesus. Now look, here's the thing about Disneyland. I know some of you are not Disneyland people. When I say Disneyland, you think long lines and screaming kids and long lines and expensive food. And here's just reality, ready? Becoming a Christian, going through the gate that is Jesus is not going to make everything perfect for you, but it is going to make dealing with the imperfections much better. 
And Jesus is the only way into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says, look, look, you got to come through me. And if you'll come through me, then I'm going to provide you with new joy and new love and new hope and new forgiveness. And not only that, I'm going to be your protector. Because gates do that too. They protect you, right? And and so Jesus says that he is the gate. Um, Next he says, I am the good shepherd. Ah, this is my dog's old collar. My dog passed away right before my children were born and never really gotten over the loss, but uh, Roy was an incredible dog. I mean, he was so smart and so easy, and, um, and we miss him a lot. We'll just say it like that before I get too emotional. And uh, this was his collar. I haven't been able to get rid of it, but uh, it's interesting to think. I, I don't know sheep at all. Like, I don't know anything about sheep. I've never, I, I mean, sometimes when we drive by them with my kids, we baw at them uh, out loud. And so I know that they make a baw sound. That's what I'm told anyway. But like, I don't know anything about sheep, but I do know about domesticated animals. And, and domesticated animals can be really smart. Uh, I, I find great value in them. Uh, I, I loved my dog so, so, so much. But without somebody shepherding them, if you will, Without an owner, a domesticated dog is just lost and eventually they'll die. Uh, Roy needed to be by me every single second. We would, we would uh, go into Starbucks and I would tie him to a chair outside, uh, just put his leash on the bottom of a chair. And, and he loved me so much. And this is one of the things I loved about him. He would just sit and he would just stare at me the whole time like I'd been gone for 20 years. Like it was the end of the world. And every time people would be like, Man, your dog really likes you. Yes, he does. Uh, more than your dog likes you. I didn't say that, but uh, that's, what, that's what I would think. So one morning we were there, and, uh, and Roy, he was, a, he was a skittish dog, not like in the bite way, but just in scared of everything. He knocked the chair over, and he panicked, started running, drugged the chair for a long while, and then kept running, and I kid you not, he ran all the way back to our home on the sidewalks, crossing the crosswalks that we always go on. And then I was calling Bryn. I was running. It was only like six in the morning or something. I'm sprinting. He's sprinting. He's winning. And he runs. We open the door and he climbs right by the couch and just curls up like it was the worst thing that's ever happened to him. It probably was the worst thing that ever happened to him. And for me, that serves as an incredible reminder of, of life with the shepherd and life without the shepherd. As humans, we're smart, and whether you love Jesus or not, you're probably smart, and you're probably cool, and you're probably, you know, have great friends and, and some decent morals, but it, it, we're just kind of lost, fearful, without a shepherd for our souls. Jesus looks out at people, and, and he's like so sad because he says they're like sheep without a shepherd, and too many people are like, sorry, this I don't mean this offensively. You're like dogs without uh, an owner. Like people just wandering around going, what's next? And so Jesus wants to, he wants to treat you and love you like I loved my dog. What's my next one? Um, oh, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. You, you may know this, but what we believe about Jesus is that, that he came from heaven to earth. He lived perfectly sinlessly and he died on a cross at the end of his life. And then he came back to life on the day we call Easter. And he did all that because he saw us and he saw that we were sinners who had broken our relationship with God. So Jesus is the resurrection life because he provides it. We get to live, if we place our faith in Jesus, we get to live even though we die. This is... Um, 
this is my stepmom's mom. She passed away uh, maybe a year ago now or eight months ago, somewhere in that range. Man, kids, uh, my daughter and I, again, Hazel right over here, we've had so many conversations about where Aimee is now that she's died. I know that we like to shove this away and not think about it very much and try to get past it and we just don't deal with death. We say, you know, they, I don't know, we use our euphemisms and all that. But from like the time we're really little, I mean, my two and a half year old daughter is asking like, what's next? What happens when we no longer here? What does that look like? We spent a whole drive up to see Ellen, somebody in our church. She had had surgery. We were driving all the way to Northeast Portland. We spent most of that drive talking about what happens when we die. All of us, all of us worry about it, even if we pretend we don't. And Jesus looks at people and says, here's the deal. I'm the resurrection and the life. If you place your faith in me, then even though you might, you will die, you still get to have life. And that life is in a much better place. That life is in heaven. And then, and then just two more here, just two more. Uh, uh, Jesus says, oh, sorry, shouldn't have given that one away. Jesus says that, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says that no one comes to the Father but through him. Here's my, my son. My daughter wears it too, but this is my son's kind of life vest thing. I don't know what they're calling these things. When I was a kid, we had floaties that were horribly uncomfortable. And I just remember my dad having to shove them further onto my arm. And my arms had no circulation. And I'd be out there like this. These are much better. And, and they work great. Uh, and, and here's the thing. They keep my son alive in a swimming pool. No way around that. He could not float without them. I mean, we still watch him and all that, but they keep him alive in a swimming pool. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, he's saying, here's the deal. I'm the only way to be saved. I'm the only way to be saved. Now, here's what the world has done. Here's what people do. They say, well, that sounds arrogant. That sounds you know, like you're saying all other religions are wrong. That, that doesn't seem very kind or very nice. There's got to be more than one way. There has to be another way. And a lot of people will tell you that you can be saved, that you can get into heaven in a lot of different ways by being a good person, by, you know, living a moral life. I know those go together by making sure you go to church. But Jesus emphatically declares, look, I'm the Messiah. I'm the only single way. And to me, spreading all of these other ways and saying, well, you, you'll probably get to heaven because you seem like overall, if we were weighing this thing out, you've done a good job. You'll probably get in there. It's basically like putting my son Hudson on a piece of bread and saying, well, I guess that'll save his life because it feels like it might. It doesn't make it true just because somebody says it's true. It doesn't make it true just because you want it to be true. It doesn't make it true just because it sounds nicer you got to wrestle with the idea of whether or not Jesus is the only thing that's going to keep you afloat or whether he's not. There's, this, there's this, this thing that happens. People talk about Jesus and they're like, oh, he's a nice guy. He's great, but I, I'm not going to place my faith in him as Savior. He's saying I'm the only Savior. Either he's making it up or he's not. You can't put your kid on a piece of paper, throw him in a pool and say, I believe that it will keep him alive. You need to know that it will keep them alive. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the last thing, the last one, is Jesus says that he is the true vine. Uh, this is a blackberry vine. Our church property, that we own seven acres. For those of you who don't know, on Boone's Ferry and Day Road. And 
man, it's full of blackberry vines, and I, I hate blackberries now because of that, because we're clipping them all the time. That's not the metaphor that Jesus is getting to here, uh, but one of the things that happens every summer is we go from hating those blackberry vines to loving them because blackberries show up. We, we send people out there, and, and people pick bucketful after bucketful. They're organic, you know. I mean, they're incredible, incredible blackberries that grow on our church's property. And what Jesus is saying is, like, if you want fruit in your life, if you want the things that I've already mentioned, peace, joy, love, hope, forgiveness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things, if you want those things, then you have to be connected to me, the Messiah. A lot of people want the hope that Jesus brings without the Jesus that offers it. It just doesn't work that way. If you want blackberries, you need a blackberry vine. It's the vine that brings the nourishment that produces the fruit. In John 20, 31, he says, And then by believing you may have life in his name. And life in the book of John is not just something that happens in heaven someday when John says life in his in his gospel in this book called John he's referring to what we get right now and will have for eternity life that has fruit life that is saved life that's entered life that's entered into the gates that that leads to a better life life that that brings light I mean life that brings all of the goodness that Jesus wants us to have he says that's why I want you to believe because knowing the Messiah is life-changing And so here's two things, and then I'm going to say a prayer for you. Two things that I hope all of us will do when we leave this place. If you're a person that has not given your life to Jesus, I hope that you will. I hope that you will because it's life-changing. But if today you say, no, I'm a person that doesn't believe in Jesus, but I won't, here's my challenge for you. Will you please read the book of John? And at least read it, and at the end of the book of John, you can make a determination, yes or no, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God or not. But at least, just please Leave here today and read the book of John. Look at the seven I am's. Look at the seven signs and say, is this something I should place my faith in? Let me pray that you'll do that. Lord Jesus, I pray that every person here would know you as their Messiah and their Lord. I pray, God, that, that you, Jesus, would do incredible work in each of these people's lives and that God you would draw us not just people who don't believe but all of us to read your words so that we may remember how great it is that we are connected to you Lord I thank you Jesus for dying for our sins I thank you for coming back to life I thank you for drawing us to you and I pray these things in Jesus name amen